1: Presented
2: by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Murder in Illinois is a production of iHeartRadio. At this point, it was April of 2021, and the last email I'd received from Christopher Vaughn began with, Lauren, I'm so sorry to have wasted your time. I am done with the podcast. That email ended with, I thank you for your compassion and your willingness to help. I wish you all the best, Chris. This was an unexpected and unfortunate turn, especially in light of the potential insight Chris's five-page letter provided, something I conveyed to his parents on April 1st. It's so strange that he sent that to me because today I got my first shot of the vaccine. So I'm that much closer to being able to visit with him. And I think you were right. You both said that he knows what to expect from life right now.
3: Well, evidently that's why he hasn't called us this week, because he's been overthinking, going through it. Going through a new trial is like pulling teeth with him. He doesn't want to go back to Joliet. He doesn't want to bring up the loss of his children again. He doesn't want to point a finger at Kim, and then, then he, he gets scared. He doesn't want to put hope out there. He thought that he was not good enough to take care and watch over and save his children. And he doesn't want it out there again that he was unable to do that. For him, time has stood still. It might be 14 years later, but for him, I think he's just rerunning that all the time. Well, like Gail said, he has nothing to do 24-7, but think about this. And he's got anxiety about going through this all again.
2: Well, there are other avenues for post-conviction relief other than a trial. Okay,
3: that would help because right now Chris only sees a retrial. I I know that's if we could actually get to talk to him, visit him, and it would help things a lot.
2: I was becoming increasingly convinced that Vaughn's version, as laid out in the letter, provided answers to issues I'd personally had with both the prosecution and the defense's scenarios of the events. I have been through everything with a fine-tooth comb. They theorize how he did it, but they can't explain why there is no blood trail from the passenger side. If he was shot on one side and he was standing on the other, he would have had to have walked around the car, either the front or the back. None of it makes sense. They proved motive, but they never proved that he did it. Forensics are explained by his version of what happened that day. I'm Lauren Bright Pacheco, and this is Murder in
0: Illinois.
2: Yes, but understandable. I reached out to Bill to discuss Chris's email about no longer moving forward. There have been parts of his memories that he's kept really hidden from himself and locked away for a long time, and now they're all out there. He had to put them on the page, and now he's living with them on a daily basis. I told his parents that I was going to keep corresponding with him, and just ask that he meet with me, at least. His version of the events really seems to explain the forensics of the car. If his letter ends up being backed up by your crime scene reconstruction, is there another option other than going through another trial? Perhaps going to the AG or to the governor?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's a long shot. All these avenues are just extremely difficult. But executive clemency, it stands a better chance than going back to Wilk County.
2: Executive clemency would be a possible way of avoiding another trial. It referred to the general powers of the president and of governors to pardon, grant amnesty, communion, or reprieve to individuals who've been convicted. Two days after that discussion, Gail and Pierre called with news they'd finally heard from Chris. I immediately reached back out to Bill. They spoke to Chris. They said he cannot give up on himself and he cannot quit until he has sat with us in person and we've talked to him about his other options. And he's back on board.
4: That's great. That is a positive development.
2: Yeah. He's stirred up all these feelings and emotions and memories. And on many levels, I think he's come to the conclusion that it would be easier to just stay where he is and live what he knows.
4: He just has resigned himself to just isolating. and It's good that his parents were able to get through to him.
2: Another obstacle would be getting Chris to agree to share the information in that deeply personal letter he'd sent his parents. It is also the only eyewitness account of the events that day. And if it does end up overlapping seamlessly with the forensics in terms of recreating the crime scene, it's ultimately the key to getting him out. And so we we need to address it.
4: It's an incredibly difficult case, as it is, but having his cooperation is essential.
2: Absolutely. It becomes very clear that he was incapable or unwilling to defend himself until this point. So it is a breakthrough. Yeah, it's as if he was challenging people to figure it out without his help. Yeah. My next step was to reach out for advice to a prominent force in the innocence community, Jason Flom, the host of the Wrongful Conviction podcast that bears his name. Our paths actually crossed a few years back when I picked up a freelance producing job for The Dr. Phil Show solely for the chance to meet Flom in person. As it turned out, he was listening to Murder in Oregon, one of my previous podcasts at the time, and we've stayed in touch since. As an aside, Jason's three decades of work in the field of justice reform is as impressive as his day job. As a record label executive, he's launched the careers of acts like Matchbox 20, Katy Perry, and Lord. He's a truly impressive, inspiring guy.
5: I am the founding board member of the Innocence Project in New York, not the founder by any means, but the founding board member of big difference. The founders, of course, are Barry Scheck and Peter Newfeld. I don't remember the exact case, but I turned on the TV, and there was a story that the Innocence Project, which was a brand new organization back then, had found the DNA in a case of a guy who was about to be executed, and at sort of the last hour had ridden in like the Avengers and proven that this man was innocent. Not only did he not get executed, but he was freed. And I thought that's the most amazing, craziest shit I've ever heard. It never occurred to me back then that innocent people went to prison.
2: That was 30 years ago. And ever since, Flam has become a powerful voice for the powerless and voiceless, and well-versed in the misconceptions surrounding wrongful convictions.
5: There's growing awareness, for sure, about the scourge of wrongful convictions. But I think it's probably hard for the human mind or the American mind to process the idea that it's as common as it is. Because if you accept that, then you have to also understand that it could happen to you. The fact is it happens all the damn time. And social scientists, different studies have estimated between 4 and 7% of people in prison are, are innocent in America. Some say as high as 10%. I personally think it may be higher because of the guilty plea problem. And that doesn't even take into account the huge number of people that are in jail who haven't been convicted of anything.
2: flam is all too familiar with the most sobering statistics about our legal system, in particular pre-conviction incarceration.
5: Almost 500,000 people in jail right now as we're talking who haven't been convicted of anything. And the majority of those people are actually innocent. So when you add all those numbers together, you get to a really high number of people that are actually innocent. I mean, over 200,000 seems to be very likely. 200,000 people innocent of the crimes for which they are serving time or awaiting trial is nuts. And every one of them has a story and had dreams and hopes and aspirations, has a family of some sort. It's a massive, massive problem. But I'm super humbled and grateful that people listen to my podcast and are learning and and getting involved. And change is coming. It's happening right now.
2: Change and reform he's dedicated to making sure also addresses the treatment of people after they've served their sentences.
5: Yeah, there's almost a, an analogy I would draw where you've probably seen these k- cities and counties where they take the spots where homeless people sleep at night and they put spikes on the benches and things. I mean, isn't it bad enough that these people are, are without a place to live? And now we're going to take away what little comfort they may have been able to find under a bridge or God knows where. And it's sort of like the same thing we do with people coming out of prison, innocent or guilty, right? Where we should be providing them with the tools that they need to reenter society, to be able to go back to their community, to their family, to their school, and have a chance, a real chance at rebuilding their life. Instead, we put up roadblocks at every turn. Basically, they have to live a life of, of... Purity and sanctity and perfection and promptness, and they have to be on time for their parole officer and whatever. And they can't eat a poppy seed bagel because they'll fail a drug test. And otherwise, they're going back to jail. And of course, there's all the other barriers, right? In, into employment and housing.
2: That's the other thing. I think that there is this naivete, this misconception that if someone is innocent and you can prove it, that they're automatically welcomed back into society, let out of prison. And it's a huge hurdle. And that's why I'm I'm reaching out to you because in the case with Chris Vaughn, I didn't want to reach out to you actually until I felt that I could very clearly articulate why I needed your advice and why I needed your guidance and your help in this. With Chris's knowledge and his parents' support, I'd sent Jason Bond's five-page letter in addition to extensive background information, crime scene reports, depositions, and Bill Clutter's 2010 detailed summary, which made the case for murder-suicide based on forensic evidence.
5: I often think that the only thing worse than being wrongfully convicted and sent to prison for the rest of your life, or death, row, or any, any variation of that, is being wrongfully convicted of murdering a relative, particularly a child, your own child or a parent, um, or sibling, I guess. But something about the child or the parent is particularly difficult for me to process. Arresting him at the funeral is just particularly sick scenario, and you know, but it goes on all the time, right? It's like, what do the authorities kick in people's doors allegedly looking for drugs? If you're looking for drugs, why not wait till somebody emerges from the house in the morning and arrest them then? You know, but it's all—it's all just backwards, and and it's all designed for maximum cruelty and abuse. That's the system that we're in, and he unfortunately caught the very worst of all of it.
2: I wanted Flom's seasoned opinion to weigh in on the one I was finally ready to voice. The letter, honestly, it's like you take an overlay and all the missing puzzle pieces just materialized. And you could see for the first time the clear picture. And it just makes the whole thing that much more tragic, actually, on so many levels. Jason, you have the defense theory, which didn't make sense because they uh, wanted to believe the reason why he couldn't remember anything was dissociative amnesia and that he was in the car when the kids were shot and that um, he rolled forward in kind of a frozen state and then he sat back into her blood. None of that made sense, but the prosecution's theory made no more sense And it wasn't until you get his letter and you realize that he was behind the car, heard this explosion inside the car, that as he was opening the driver's side, she shot him once, tried to get back in, she shot again, and then shot herself. So when he sat back down into the driver's seat and turned around to check on the kids... Her blood was all over his back, but her body was also slumped. And in his panic, he thought, I'll drive to go get help. And in doing so, he tried to pull her belt, which she had taken off. And his blood from his wounded left wrist was all over the belt. And his hands were shaking so much while he was trying to buckle her in, because she was also blocking that buckle, that... The blood pooled on the council and then he gave up because he was shaking and it retracted and went back and he got out of the car. But that's why none of his blood is on the exterior perimeter, back or front of the car. If he had shot her, there would have been blood all over him and he would have had to have walked around. And it wasn't until Chris wrote the letter, which I shared with you that I started this thinking what if he were innocent and now I sincerely feel he is Chris Vaughn allowed himself to be convicted he was incapable or unwilling for 14 years to adequately defend himself in many levels it's just this perfect storm of tunnel vision, confirmation bias, character assassination, and then blood splatter evidence, which it's this interpretive science, which is like reading an ink block.
1: at purdueglobal.edu.
2: Blood spatter expert Paul Kish was utilized by the prosecution to contend that the blood spatter evidence did not conform with Vaughn having left the vehicle before his wife was shot due to the presence of his blood on the seatbelt, console, and droplets on the passenger side. Obviously, Kish wasn't privy to Bond's latest revelations, but even at the time of the trial, Kish conceded that he couldn't rule out murder-suicide based on the blood evidence either. Here again is Jason Flom.
5: Let's talk about blood spatter, because I think people watch Dexter or they watch uh, CSI or whatever they watch, and they have this totally unrealistic view. Because the National Academy of Sciences, right, the real thing, right, the people who we should hold in the highest regard in 2009 did a a very intensive study, real scientific integrity. And they were extremely critical of a number of the junk sciences. But I think they saved some of their strongest words for blood spatter. And among other things, that this blood spatter analysis is more subjective than substantive.
2: It's whatever you want to see, and it can be used to prove whatever you want to prove, given most scenarios.
5: No, you're absolutely right. It is the, probably the worst of all the junk sciences, and, I, and to call it a science is ridiculous, right? You can take a 40-hour course to become a blood stain pattern, panelist. And then you can actually go and testify in court. It's ridiculous. It's absurd because these people are getting up and testifying as experts. 40 hours. What can you learn in 40 hours? Almost nothing. There's nothing scientific about it. It's foolishness is what it is, except for the fact that the consequences are so extremely serious and real. So that should have been the end of it. It should never have been used again after that was made clear but again the courts fall back on themselves and the system protects itself it doesn't protect the people it doesn't work for the Chris Vaughns it doesn't work for any of the people it's supposed to work for which are the people whose lives are in the hands of the system that is supposed to you know protect their rights and all of our rights and once Once it starts down a road and that tunnel vision sets in, as you said, Lauren, they will find ways to railroad you. And they just put these blinders on and and it doesn't matter. And as I was listening to you talk, it occurred to me that Chris is exactly the person that we were referencing a few minutes ago, right? Because he didn't believe that he could be wrongfully convicted, which is why he didn't really mount a defense. First of all, this poor guy's just lost his entire family. He's just seen his entire family dead in front of his eyes, right? He saw his kids murdered like seconds earlier, bleeding to death, whatever, the backseat of his car. And then his wife, now granted he wasn't badly hurt, but I've never been shot. I'm sure it's kind of traumatic to be shot twice and then find your family dead is something nobody should ever have to go through and it's unbelievable to even imagine what the hell and and it's also disgusting for us to think that we know how someone should or should not act that has been through that.
2: And yeah, you're right he was judged on his demeanor he didn't act the way he should. I think that he didn't want to implicate his wife because he felt guilt that he thought that his actions drove her to do something so horrific and out of character.
5: And, you know, in my view, he's guilty of being maybe not the best husband, but I'm not going to sit there and judge him. And I would say that no one else really should either. We don't know what was going on in their relationship or in their home. And that is also not a crime. It might be a moral failing, but it's not a crime. And also that I think he was in a certain way protecting the reputation of the woman that he had been married to. But this also reminds me lauren of in a certain way the case that we covered on wrongful conviction the larry delisle case right where larry was in his car with his four kids and his wife gas pedal jammed and the car went screaming into the river off a dock and he and his wife i don't think they could swim but they managed to get out and the kids were tragically drowned and then started this narrative where he's not emotional enough, the press is stalking him at his house, He's they were sitting outside, he and his wife having an iced tea or a beer or something. Now he was on a lot of medications after this. He was taking so many pills to try to deal with this unimaginable trauma, but they wanted to believe what they wanted to believe. and And I think in that case, people couldn't process the idea that this car could have malfunctioned in such a way with such awful consequences so even when the evidence emerged that is in in fact exactly what happened and even when it became clear that 117 i think other cars of this exact same make and model had been recalled because the accelerator jammed and even though his wife said the accelerator jammed the story got out there in the media that he had confessed that's debatable but larry is still in prison now 30 i think it was 1989. so yeah this unfortunately is going back to what your question from earlier this is terribly terribly common and we need to overhaul the system and you know lady justice with the scales it's not a realistic depiction at all of our system
2: yeah i know this concept that justice is blind
5: I think it's deaf. And it's interesting as it relates to this case, right, to the Vaughn case, because, you know, another thing that I think is really not in the public consciousness is that science and justice are practically opposite, right? Science is based on analysis of data and information that is processed in a way that is scientific. And justice is based on precedent, right? So while science moves forward, justice looks backward. And some of these junk sciences are similar in certain ways, right? Just as with bite mark evidence. And so what I mean by that is a judge will look at a case and say, well, there's another court that ruled that bite marks are okay, even though you have... A huge body of evidence that you've just presented that shows that bite marks are as unscientific as could be i'm going to allow it because another court allowed it justice should be about making sure that whilst mistakes will always be made that we minimize those mistakes and that people who don't do their jobs and that extends to the defense bar as well if you have a defender public or private who shows up drunk or doesn't mount any defense for a client or is corrupt in any way, they should be disbarred, just like in other professions. And it almost never happens on the other side, on the prosecution side. We know that police and prosecutors lie with impunity, as do, unfortunately, many forensic examiners. They either lie or they just don't know what they're talking about.
2: And while there are many cases worthy of Jason's help, he agreed to explore whether Vaughn's was worthy of re-examination.
5: It's unbelievable. It, yeah, it, Kafka meets Victor Hugo in the worst possible ways. And I, I feel, as you do, compelled to want to help him.
2: Next, I linked him with Bill Clutter to discuss more details about the case.
4: Sergeant Gary Lawson had already formed an opinion from day one that Chris Vaughn committed uh, the murder of his wife and three kids. Sergeant Lawson's theory just conflicted with the ballistic evidence. We conducted our own examination of the uh, Ford Expedition, and Tom Bevel, our bloodstain expert, notices that in the back of the Ford Expedition behind where the children were seated. There's a third seat and there was a bullet lodged. And so he asked to get a doll rod. He put it through the back of the seat where Cassandra was seated in the middle of the two other children and pushed it through the third seat where the bullet was lodged. It showed that the shot that killed Cassandra was fired from the passenger seat. And then Luke Cade, who was a ballistic expert, inspected the vehicle again with a laser. And so clearly that shot came from where where Kim was, was seated. And, and the irony about this whole case is the state doesn't, cons- they, they acknowledge that the crime scene evidence suggests a murder-suicide, but that Chris Vaughn was this mastermind, that he was so smart that he read this article in PI Magazine, which, you know, they fingerprinted, it, his fingerprints weren't on it, And and the article was the cover story about – it was a detective from New York City. It dealt with staging a a murder to look like a suicide. Well, the example that he was writing about was uh, some case where a woman had been strangled to death by the killer. And then the killer stages it to look like she had hung herself and committed suicide. Totally separate. And so they tried to infer and to argue with the jury that somehow – But it's all confirmatory bias. The police see that article, they say, aha, he must have staged it to look like a suicide. But that was their case.
5: Bill and Lauren, I want to say that this is, sadly, tragically, not an uncommon narrative, right? Where law enforcement decides that the person who they... Claim to be the perpetrator is both a deranged psychopath and a criminal mastermind, right? I believe when it's caught up along with the media shitstorm and the heightened emotions around a case like this, it's like the thing just grows and everyone is able to put on the same set of blinders and go, yep, that must be what happened. To any trainee investigator or first year law student or someone who even watches TV crime shows, you could look at this and go, no, just no, that's not how this could have happened. The prosecutor, I'm sure, would have had the jurors in the palm of his hand as he or she presented this narrative because they don't want to believe that mom killed the kids and there's nobody alive to blame.
2: But to challenge Vaughn's conviction, both the state scenario and the one recently conveyed in Chris's letter would need to be scientifically tested to know which one aligned with ballistic and blood evidence in regards to the crime scene.
4: The state's theory that Paul Kish testified to, that Kim was, her seatbelt was buckled when she was shot and killed, but that Chris unbuckled it to somehow stage the crime scene. I always felt all along that it would have been virtually impossible the way her body was positioned. He would actually have to move her body to try to unbuckle her seatbelt it was buckled. And then the second thing is her blood would be somewhere on that seatbelt as that seatbelt's retracting. So that's one scenario that we'll test. But the other one is whether Chris, you know, the the act of trying to buckle her in, which he describes in his statement—
2: Bill Clutter believes by demonstrating how each scene unfolded, and by testing which scenario is supported by the actual crime scene evidence, he can call Vaughn's guilt into question. Jason Flom agreed that there was enough reasonable doubt to question Vaughn's conviction and to warrant mounting a crime scene reconstruction.
5: Because there's this freaking thing in the Constitution where it says, innocent until proven guilty, and there's that other thing about reasonable doubt I don't know how and when that went out the window, but we need to restore those principles.
2: But crime scene reconstructions cost money. Bill Clutter had applied for a fund that could potentially cover the costs of one for Vaughn and was waiting for news on that grant.
5: If there's anything that I can do in terms of financial support, if there's a need for a test that you can't get the money for it, I mean, I will, you know, just call me.
4: Well, here's what I want to do, and I'll send you the grant, but. We're going for the grant to fund the crime scene reconstruction. I'd like to get this crime scene reconstruction done by August.
5: Well, you know, let me know. I mean, I'm I'm happy to write a check if that's what's needed. You know, I've been lucky enough to make some money, and this is is how I choose to spend it.
2: And suddenly, with that act of unexpected generosity, Christopher Vaughn's conviction was that much closer to getting a very real and very significant chance for reevaluation. It was about this time that we uncovered a potentially troubling timeline concerning Christopher Vaughn's indictment in July of 2007. Bill was going back through the discovery from the Vaughn case and happened upon a phone record memo regarding a conversation between the state and its DNA testing lab.
4: The decision to arrest Christopher Vaughn was made on Friday, June 22nd. He was arrested the next day, right before the funerals for his family were to begin. And that decision really focused on two issues. One was Chris's inability to remember how his wife's blood was transferred to the back right side of his jacket, and the belief that he had staged the crime scene by unbuckling his wife's seatbelt. And that was based on Bob Deal's observations that there was a large saturation stain on his wife's passenger seatbelt that appeared consistent with her bleeding onto the seatbelt. That assumption turned out to be wrong and it was disproved by DNA testing. All of the blood turned out to be Chris's blood. And that wasn't discovered until about a week after they arrested Chris when the DNA results came back.
2: So what day did the DNA results come back and what did they show and who was aware? Pay close attention to the timeline and details you're about to hear.
4: We obtained a uh, phone conversation log that was kept by the uh, crime lab. The general practice of the forensic scientists are to keep telephone logs of contacts with investigators and even private investigators like myself. On June 27th of 2007, at around 10 a.m., Kelly Krajnak from the uh, Joliet Crime Lab contacted Sergeant Gary Lawson, and she gave him a verbal report of the DNA results, which included one of the stains on the passenger seatbelt. And that stain turned out to be Chris's blood, not Kimberly's blood as they first believed.
2: So I'm reading it now and it says, reason for call, 10 a.m., June 27, 2007. I called to speak to Gary Lawson. I gave him verbal DNA results on the latest batch of exhibits. He asked me to inform the state's attorney's office. I'll give them a call, period. And then what happens?
4: She had left a message.
2: And that would have been, according to the memo, at 10.35 a.m. And then what happened?
4: And then she got a call back by both Jim Glasgow, the state's attorney, and, and his assistant, John Connor. And, and that was at 2 o'clock. And there was a later call at 4 just to confirm whether they wanted the statistical analysis of the DNA. And this is the probability of the DNA. And that occurred around 4 p.m.
2: So it is your understanding that they should have known whose blood was on the retracted belt at that point?
4: At that point, yes, Uh, based on the DNA results that were given
2: to them. Christopher Vaughn was indicted the following month. An indictment requires the state prosecutor to go in front of a grand jury and present evidence of the alleged crime and ask the grand jury to bring charges against the defendant. All capital crimes and those for which the death penalty is a punishment must be presented by indictment. You're about to hear the exact transcript from the closed grand jury testimony that was presented on July 25th, 2007, nearly a month after it was known that the DNA results on the retracted belt belonged to Christopher, not Kimberly Vaughn.
4: This is where Sergeant Lawson testified before the grand jury, which ultimately indicted Chris. And there was a series of questions he was asked about the seatbelt.
2: I will read the part of the female prosecutor.
4: And this is one of the other prosecutors, Leah Norbit, and she's talking about the crime scene investigators.
2: They looked at the seatbelt, right? Yes. And on that seatbelt, as if the seatbelt were pulled to be seatbelted someone in. Correct. There was blood on that seatbelt, was there not?
4: Yes, it was.
2: And when Kimberly Vaughn was found by the paramedics and by the police, she was not wearing a seatbelt.
4: That's correct.
2: And that is significant because she was wearing that seatbelt when she was shot.
4: That's correct.
2: What's problematic from your viewpoint about that testimony in front of a grand jury, which means, if I'm not mistaken, that he could not have been cross-examined. It was closed.
4: Right. The problem is is that they've got DNA testing that contradicts their initial assumption that this was Kim's blood, and the DNA testing contradicts that initial assumption. So you can't say, based on the DNA testing, that she was seat when she was shot because her blood wasn't on the seatbelt. That's the problem with that testimony.
2: Well, they would have had verbal confirmation of the DNA results a month earlier on the 27th of June, but when would they have had written confirmation?
4: And this is where it becomes problematic because after Sergeant Lawson gives that testimony, there's a DNA report that's dated the day after, which is July 26, 2007. But the problem is we found in Discovery that same report had been actually dated July third, 2007, three weeks before he gave that testimony. And on that report that was dated July third, there was in handwritten notes draft at the top and on each page. So it appears that It gives Sergeant Lawson plausible deniability about the results of the DNA, having it dated the day after he testified at the grand jury. And the report was actually dated July 3rd, about three weeks before he testified. And so it really raises all kinds of questions as to who directed the DNA analyst, Kelly Krajonek, to mark draft, if that's her handwriting. What was the purpose of marking a draft?
2: Was there any difference between the version that's marked draft on the 3rd of July and the final version, which is dated the day after the closed grand jury testimony?
4: The only difference is the date. The, the reports are identical. The conclusions of the DNA results are identical. The only thing that's different is the changing of the date on the report.
2: How do you characterize that?
4: It smells of fraud. That's what it smells to me. It really deserves further investigation and to get to the bottom of why that report was manipulated. I've never seen it in my 35 years of investigating for, you know, police reports and forensic labs. I've never seen this ever in my career. And so it really begs the question, why was it done and uh, who directed it to be done?
2: Why would the date have been changed to the day after Lawson testified when it was known that he had this information a month before that time? If this was done intentionally, it does give the appearance that in order to secure Christopher Vaughn's indictment, the prosecution was trying to hide the fact that this information was known at the time of Lawson's testimony. I reached out to the office of the Will County State's Attorney to request formal clarification. After sending two emails, I followed up by phone and was informed by James Glasgow's Director of Public Affairs that Mr. Glasgow was not interested in providing a statement or response. With that in mind, I wanted to speak to a legal expert and get their thoughts. Richard Kling is a clinical professor of law in Chicago at the Kent College of Law and a practicing defense lawyer. What are your thoughts just on the fact of Will County State's Attorney seeking a grand jury indictment as opposed to a preliminary hearing?
7: In most of the murder cases, the state's attorney generally takes it to the grand jury. It's not unusual. In my experience, the vast majority of murder cases and sex cases are taken directly to the grand jury.
2: Although the DNA testing had disproven the initial theory, that Kimberly Vaughn was wearing her safety belt when she was shot, allegedly. Sergeant Gary Lawson appeared before the grand jury, and testimony was elicited that suggested that Kimberly Vaughn was wearing the seat belt at the time of her death. Having read over that transcript, how would you characterize that testimony in light of the fact that he knew the results a month before
7: It's certainly erroneous. Whether it was mistakenly erroneous or intentionally erroneous, obviously I can't get into somebody else's mind, but it was certainly a mistake to bring that in front of the grand jury the way it was.
2: Would you categorize it as misleading?
7: Well, it is misleading to the grand jury, realistically. They didn't have the full story.
2: And I know that in Illinois, police are were and are allowed to lie to a suspect during interrogations to coerce a confession or secure a confession, I should say. Is there any scenario in which an officer of the law would be allowed to lie on the witness stand?
7: Absolutely not. That the law is abundant. Police officers are not allowed to lie to grand jurors.
2: Kling was already very familiar with the Christopher Vaughn case and investigating innocent's efforts on his behalf. For him, it called to mind another famous Illinois case, which we referenced in a previous episode, that led to the abolishment of the death penalty in Illinois and involved the vilification of another investigator, much along the lines of Bob Deal's experience.
7: The parallels are spookily similar. To the extent that Mike Callahan, who was the state police officer, when 48 Hours was going to do a piece about Randy Steidel, he was asked by the state police to investigate essentially to make sure that they were covered. And what happened with Callahan is that he ended up finding out that the state police had screwed around with a lot of stuff, as well as the local police. And he eventually went from being a decorated lieutenant in charge of the whole district to writing traffic tickets on I-55. The parallels are very similar to the extent of the state police was asked to do an investigation to make sure that the Whitlock-Steidel case went well. And when Callahan came to the conclusion it didn't go well, he ended up getting axed. And it's similar here.
2: Ultimately, former Illinois State Police Investigator Michael Callahan would file a civil lawsuit which determined his constitutional rights had been violated by his superiors. He wrote a book detailing his experience called Too Politically Sensitive. As mentioned previously, the two men convicted for murders they did not commit, Herb Whitlock and Randy Stidle, were ultimately released as a result of the corruption and misconduct Callahan uncovered. Stidle had been imprisoned for 17 years. Whitlock... For 21. Back to Richard Klang.
7: You know, I think the bottom line is, I would hope that the state police, as well as the rest of the world, is not interested in having somebody who was innocent convicted. And hopefully, they would want to reopen it. And hopefully, the result for Mr. Vaughan will be the same that it was for Whitlock and Steidel.
2: Richard Kling is very clear on where he stands in regards to Christopher Vaughn.
7: I was a public defender in Cook County for 10 years. In November, I will have been practicing 50 years. I've tried over 500 murder jury cases, including DNA. So I'm not just speaking from the standpoint of academia, I'm speaking from the standpoint of being in the trenches. And I think it's a case that needs to be reevaluated. Can't you hear the word?
2: On the next murder in Illinois, I finally meet Christopher Vaughn in person. Right as we get closer to the prison, it's absolutely pouring. Forks of lightning. Before Bill Clutter takes on meticulously mounting an ambitious crime scene reconstruction. We're all going to get the visual of every scenario, and that's important. That will put Vaughn's version of events to the test.
5: As you pull back these layers, it becomes so painfully obvious
2: Murder in Illinois is a production of iHeartRadio Executive producers are Lauren Bright Pacheco and Taylor Shacoin, Written by Lauren Bright Pacheco and Matthew Riddle Story editing by Matthew Riddle Editing and sound design by Evan Tyre and Taylor Shacoin. Featuring music by Cicada Rhythm with new compositions engineered and mixed by Evan Tyre and Taylor Shacoin. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get the stories that matter to you.
6: Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next-day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit RightRug.com.